Here's a series of questions that we sort of left off with last week. I'm going to put them up there. What disappoints you? Here's another question. What do you complain the most about? By the way, so as I read, you'll, okay, so where do you make financial sacrifices? What worries you? Next question. I laugh, by the way, because as I'm reading these questions, it could be like the bears, the bears, the bears, <laughs> the bears, the bears. Brian Jenkins, you know what I'm talking about? The bears, the bears. Do you realize, do you realize, do you realize that every Sunday, 60 to 70,000 worshipers gather in stadiums that'll cross to this country and bow their knees to gods that run on fields? Do you realize that? We live in a country for whom entertainment is deeply spiritual. Where's your sanctuary? <laughs> the bears. What infuriates you? See, this is, why, this is why your pastor, even though I'm a sports nut fanatic, I don't use a lot of sports analogies, right? Because there's a lot of people in our church who are like, I don't care about the Bears. Amen? Yeah, see? We don't care about the Bears. <laughs> Brian Jenkins is like, I'm at the wrong church, man. What are your dreams? How about this one? What does your search history say? We're in a new sermon series for the next several weeks on the Ten Commandments. And last week, we looked at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall have no other gods. Other assumption, you're already worshiping some god. And the commandment is a call to worship the one true god. You shall have no other Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, wherever, whoever you are in here today. What Scripture says is we are all worshipers all day, every day. And by the way, don't be thrown, out by, thrown by that word worship. It simply means to adore, to give worth to, significance to something. And the claim of the Scripture is we are all worshipers all day, every day. Every single one of us, I don't need to know your story. If we sat over coffee and I said, what do you adore? What makes you significant? Where do you give worth to? All of us in here today are worshiping something. That's why God says you shall have no other. You're already worshiping something. Other gods before me. And we said last week, God's not talking about hierarchy. God's not saying, you shall have no other gods before me as in put me in first place. God is literally saying, there are no places. There are no places. Christians love talking about us. I want to make Jesus my top priority. Jesus is saying, make me your only priority. 
The Ten Commandments push you and me to go, what's more important than rules and regulations? Those are important is recognition. Everybody say recognition. Recognition. And God's saying, it's not just that we have other gods and we want to put God first. God's going, make me your one and only. The problem isn't that we have bad things in the middle. The problem is that we put anything in the middle. And center of our lives. You shall have no other gods before, not priority, before me. The Ten Commandments pushes you and me to the essence of what Christianity and what the gospel is. By the way, I'm so encouraged because I've gotten emails from those of you saying, I'm bringing my non-coworker, non-Christian coworker friend. I'm bringing my, you know, so neighbors, so on and so forth. And I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here with your friend, those of you that maybe didn't go to church for a while and you're sort of walking in because what we're talking about lies at the center of what Scripture says and center of who we are as a church. We find the Ten Commandments, by the way, in Exodus 20, which is where we've been. So if you open your Bibles, Exodus 20, verse 1, and we're just going to go through the text and some of this is review as we continually foundation and we'll look at Commandment 2 today. And God spoke all of these words, I am the Lord, your God, your God, not the God, your God, hugely significant, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Sermon point, we've been like focusing on two, three weeks. What is the relationship between God's love and God's law? We said that God's laws and rules are not a condition for a relationship with God, but they are a confirmation of a relationship with God. God does not give the Ten Commandments as a condition of his love, condition of his acceptance, condition of some relationship with him, but a confirmation. It is critical that we know when the Ten Commandments is given. The sequence is critical. God gives the Ten Commandments not in Egypt, when they're in slavery for 400 years and says, obey it, follow it, and if you do well, then I will deliver you. God says, I need you to trust me. Trust me. Do this one thing. Kill a lamb, eat some dinner, and wipe the, po- uh, wipe the blood of the lamb and the goat on the doorpost. And I will come and judge the nation of Israel, but I will pass over those who trusted me and put the blood on the doorpost. God gives the Ten Commandments. After he has delivered them out of Israel, after he has said, I've set my love on you, we are already in a relationship. I am not the God. I am your God, and you are my people. And now that this relationship is settled, here are the laws. Here are the rules. Here are the commandments. Is that significant? Is that significant? It's huge. Because it determines how you and I read the rest of the Bible. We can read the rest of the Bible as I got to do these things so that I could get in. Or read the rest of the Bible going, I'm already in because I trusted him with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And now that I'm in, now that I'm accepted, now the relationship is established, here are the rules. So here's the sermon point we've said. God's laws and rules are to be in as intimacy with God, not to get in. And then we saw the first commandment last week. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? To cramp our style? Why? Don't have other gods before me. Because he's a killjoy? 
No, because he knows what happens when you and I put things like work, career, relationships at the center of our lives. God knows what happens when those things take the place of God. And we said last week, what happens when we put career, money, our children, marriage, relationship, anything in the place that God belongs, what happens? What happens to us? Does God give this commandment because he's a killjoy? No, because he knows that when we live for our false gods and we fail that God, that God will mercilessly curse you. I live, for my, I live for my career. What happens when you fail in your career or your career fails you? That God will mercilessly curse you. You're a failure. You're worthless. Why do you want to live? Mercilessly. And if you fulfill that God's wishes and desires and you finally get to that place, you realize, holy cow, I'm in chains. I've spent my blood, sweat, and tears and I'm in chains. I do whatever this God of career, sex, money, children, morality tells me to. God gives this for what? For freedom and not for bondage. God gives this commandment for freedom, not for bondage. We said in the sermon point, freedom comes as a result of honoring your design. The one who created us, the one who designed this whole thing, the one who knows us intimately says, do the commandments. Listen. This is not to get in. This is not. To, this is the way to life, to joy. This is the way to life and to joy. Life does. The, life doesn't work when you place things in the place that God belongs. Is that true with you? God says, recognize me for who I am, because if you do, the rest of these commandments sort of take care of themselves. That's why we said, but you know what's funny, though, is if you walk out on the street, you go, do you know the Ten Commandments that go, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not, oh, do you know the first two? Hmm. It's amazing, because God goes, you get the first two, and the rest of the commandments. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about power. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about all of these things. But all of that is in the context of have no other gods. And then we're going to look at today. The second commandment. Let's look at the second commandment. God says in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image. Those of some of you grew up in church, graven image. Shall not make a graven image. I still have no idea what that means. Anyway, um, image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this next part, man. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Can I just say something here? I don't know. I don't know what all this really means. I don't know about generational punishment, but you know, I do know something about generational consequences. Some of you as adults here, 
you're still suffering from decisions that your parents made or your grandparents made. Some of us are sitting here and we bear the scars. Whether it be marriage or sex or money or career. So I, I don't know this all about generational punishment. I do know about generational consequences. And this is, some of us parents in here, do you realize, I'm already getting ahead of myself, but you know, if you need to leave in two minutes, do you realize that you and I every day unspoken are erecting idols in our homes? And you think your four or five-year-old doesn't notice? Is God front and center in our home, parents? Is God front and center in our home? Are our children looking at you and me and the way we spend money, where we go, entertainment we watch? I don't plan on go here. I'm just going here because I feel the Holy Spirit. Do you realize our children are looking at us and going, my parents are erecting idols every day, forming images of God. What are we teaching them? Let's look at this commandment in context, okay? Remember, this is a culture in which not only was there a pantheon of gods for everything, but we're talking about a culture in which people made images of these gods. I mean, you can walk through the streets of Egypt or other cultures, for example, and not see little stone and wood images. For example, they had the god of agriculture that you prayed to, that you gave sacrifices to, and that God would give you weather, good crop. You had the God of fertility or some other God that you prayed to and gave sacrifices to, and that God would give you children. So what God says here, briefly, in context, it's so, God says, don't make, they would have been like, what? What do you mean don't make? We see images everywhere. And God says, do not make an image of me. Why? Watch this. Because whatever you make with your hands, you control. God says, what you make with your hands and you fashion, you control. And God says, you make me into you some image, you're going to control it. Don't make anything with your hands as an image of me, because what you make, you control. We'll see this and how it's played out. Um, can anybody been in a relationship? Can you guys, all, anybody relate to this? Um, I'm a pastor, and, and, and when I do pastoral counseling and couples, at the bottom of what they're saying, they're saying something along those lines. Um, you know, Pastor Peter, I want to I imagine my wife as the person I want her to be, not the person that she actually reveals herself to be. <laughs> Nate, apparently you don't have this problem with Kimmy. That's a good thing. We relationships, we relate to people as we want them to be, and that is actually our. Has anybody ever done this? Say yes if you have. Yes, we do. That's why relationships are so jacked up and marred. We impose our wants. We impose our wishes. We impose our desires on that person. We decide that they're going to be a certain way instead of actually listening to who that person says they are. And what happens we inject distortions into that relationships. So I want to relate to Carlton, not as he 
says he is but as, he, as I want him to be, as I, as I wish him to be, as I desire him to be. And what happens to that relationship? Listen, listen, I've seen marriages where people come in and essentially what the husband is saying is, I thought I married this person. She's not. I'm going. You're looking at her as the person that you thought she was five years ago, but as I'm really, really listening to you, what you're saying is, I want her to be this. I want her to be that. I wish she could be this. I wish she could be that instead of actually listening to who she's saying she is. Now, we all know that this messes up relationships, but we do it all the time. Why? What is it about you and me that wants to manipulate our environment by sort of imagining the environment to be this way, by imagining that situation to be that way, by wishing that person to be that way, by act- instead of actually listening, it's actually observing, and it's actually accepting reality as they are now. We want to do that with other people. But we want to do that more than anybody else with God. We want to look at God and go, I don't want to just receive you as you say you are. There's something in me, there was something in you that wants to imagine God this way, desire for God this way, wish him to be this way. Instead of actually listening to who God says he's revealing himself to be. Why? Because what we make with our hands, what? We control. What we make with our hands, we control. What we imagine, we manipulate. Uh, um, that's why there's this entire commandment. God spends an entire commandment out of the ten devoted to this sin because it wreaks such havoc in our lives. One of the misconceptions, one of the misconceptions, follow me here, of the second commandment is people go, oh, it's the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods. Second commandment, I wrote this up here, is actually saying you must not worship the one true God and imagine him to be what you prefer him to be, but you must worship him as he reveals himself to be. First sin is against idolatry. Second commandment, it's against distortions about God. Trying to make God into what we want him to be, not as he reveals himself to be. J.I. Pecker, famed British theologian, said this. Any statement that begins with, you know, I like to think of God as, can never be trusted. I like to think of God as can never be trusted. Why? Because there's something in you, there's something in me that says, I like to think of God as I wish he could be, I desire him to be, I want him to be. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's about what? Control. It's about control. If I think God is this way, I control him. If I imagine him to be this way, I control him. If he is only, I control him. And we don't worship God. And think about God as he is. And God's saying, don't let truth be regulated by what you think and what you imagine. Let your imagination and what you think about me be regulated by truth. Second commandment is about who God is. Truth about who God is. And worshiping him for who he is. Are you tracking so far? This sounds foreign to you and me. Because we live in a culture, a time in which objective spiritual truth, objective moral truth, 
truth that's out there, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, it's not even a concept that most people have. Our culture, just listen to what people think. Truth is what? Subjective, which means what? Truth is my feelings. Truth is what? My experiences. Truth is what? What I want it to be. Truth is what I manipulate. Because if I imagine it to be that, I'm in control. But unless you encounter God, second commandment, for who he is, you'll never be transformed. Do you remember a guy named Saul who eventually became Paul? Do you realize that that was his conversion? Do you realize that it wasn't until he encountered God as he was, he wasn't transformed? Acts chapter 9 is the story. I just read this one brief passage. This is Road to Damascus experience, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 4. This is when light blinds him and he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord, Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You got to understand biblical context. Up until this point, Saul, later become Paul, thinks he knows for sure who God is. That's why somebody comes along and says, Jesus is God. And to a good Jew like Paul, Saul, the fact that a human being could become God, there's no way Jesus could be God. Because God would never take on and become a human being. Acts chapter 8. Stephen, before he dies, he says the temple, sacrificial system, priesthood, all of that's going to be made obsolete because of Jesus. And he says God would never do that. So he's on the road to Damascus. A religious Pharisee. Light hits him. And God says, this is who I am. And it wasn't until Paul encountered God as he is, as he reveals himself to be. Not as he imagined to be, not as he thought him to be, but as he encountered God as he was. And he was knocked off of his horse. He couldn't be transformed. If you're not a Christian here, you're saying this morning, you know, I like to think of God as somebody who accepts everybody, no matter what they believe. All roads lead to the same path. And I go, well, why do you believe that? A lot of times when I really lean in and listen, they go, well, I believe God is like that because I want to believe God is like that. And Second Commandment says, then you've just made yourself an image of God. You've designed that God. Do you know the other reason why this is so foreign to you and me? Can I tell you? Did you know that Starbucks has 87,000 drink permutations? I love and respect those of you that work at Starbucks. You have a special prize in heaven. Because, if I can find that thing, where did that sheet go? Oh, where did that sheet go? Here it is. If you're standing in somebody's line in Starbucks, you may hear a drink that goes, uh, I'd like a venti, one pump caramel, one pump white mocha, two scoops vanilla bean powder, extra ice frappuccino with two shots poured over the top, a pagato style, whatever that means, with caramel drizzle under and on top of the whipped cream. Double chip, please. That is one permutation drink at Starbucks, okay? Just one. Here's another one. I'd like a venti non-fat, no foam, no water, six-pump, extra hot chai tea latte, please. Here's another one. I would like a tall ice cup. Some of y'all, this is you, okay? <laughs> you need to go home and repent today, okay? Um, <laughs> so uh, here's another one. I'd like a tall iced coffee in a grande cup with extra ice, three pumps hazelnut, two pumps classic, an inch of non-fat milk with a little dome lid and venti straw, please. Here's another one, last one, I promise. I would like a triple venti sugar-free, non-fat, no foam, extra caramel with whipped caramel macchiato. Oh, and by the way, please pour the regular coffee down the side with two packs of raw sugar and a stick stir in the side, please. 
87,000 drink permutations. You and I could order cars on the line, online to our specifications. I was told by a marathon runner I could actually order custom-made running shoes. You and I could go on Apple and go on a full album and pick and choose songs we want and make our own what? What do we call it? Playlist. You live in a culture where reality says to you, create anything you want. Maybe we do that with God. the second commandment comes and says, don't make me into something you want me to be. Oh, well, I think God is. I like to think. God says, worship me for who I am. One small thing, and then I promise we'll move on. I read this from uh, one of my favorite authors and pastors. Tim Keller said this, and it just floored me, floored me. Listen to what he said. He said, the most damaging statements about ourselves that have ever been said about ourselves are those things that we have said about ourselves, what? Anybody ever hear that voice in your head? You're worthless. Who would love you? Why would God forgive you? Anybody hear those voices? Here's the question. Here's the question. How do you overcome the condemning, condemning voices of your heart? How do you overcome the condemnations of your heart if your God is a product of your heart? How do you overcome these voices in your heart that say, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless? If your heart created that God, you need something bigger. You need something to go over your heart. Amen? Where do we have that? And this is the reason why 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, which I've talked about before, is so amazing. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. The only God that can overcome the condemnations of your heart is a God who is not a product of your heart. He sits there and goes, oh, what? why are you talking about this, making God an image? This is how practical it gets. Sure, if you go, well, I like to think of God as, that gets rid of, that gets rid of a few problems, but that God will never change you. That God will never transform you if you're insecure here this morning because your heart, you're telling yourself of your worth, you need a God that can go over your heart and says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? This is why the second commandment is so important. This isn't just an intellectual exercise. Every single day, you and I are going to walk out here Monday condemning voices that we're saying to ourselves. But if your God is something you created, that God will never heal you of your addictions. He will never heal you of your, of your temptation. He will never heal you. He will never heal you from an insecure person to a secure person. Do you see why this is so important? Do you see why it's so important? You need a God who's greater than your heart. A God who could go over your heart and saying, that's what your heart says. This is what I say. 
She says, does that make sense? I'm telling you. Do you see why the second commandment is so important? You go, well, well where, do we, where do we find that God, Peter? You find that God in the Bible, which is God's self-revelation of himself to which somebody goes, see, I know it. That's where you're going. Yep, yep, yep. I have problems with the Bible. There are things that I don't like. Things that offends my sensibilities. Again, one rather relationship example. Have you ever been in a relationship? That's a problem. Okay. If you've ever been in a relationship, a true relationship, does that person contradict you? Does that person disagree with you? I'm just looking at Daniel. Does that person tell you, I know you're totally in love, and Alicia cannot be more beautiful, more smart, more. But Daniel, are there disagreements? A real relationship one in which what? The other person says, I disagree. I don't like that. That offends me. That's a real relationship. How are you in a relationship with God if everything that you think about him perfectly agrees with your sensibilities? How are you in a relationship with the real God? You don't have a real God. You've made that God up. He's a cardboard box God, a God you put in your pocket and you walk to work on Mondays. And that God will never transform you. I don't know why I'm screaming. I don't know. I'm serious. If you're new to our church, I do this all the time. But I don't, I know, I'll tell you why. Do you know, I, because, because 99% of us, isn't this what ails us? Isn't this what ails you and me? Isn't this what ails you and me? So can I ask you a question? How many of you are rigorously submitting yourself to God's word? How many of us are seriously, rigorously submitting ourselves, studying God's word? And saying, by the way, somebody goes, well, see, see that's my problem. Because, you know, the Bible was written by a bunch of people. Here's the thing. I don't want to offend you. But the people that say, you know, I don't like the Bible because it's written by a bunch of people, sometimes don't even take the time to actually read the Bible for themselves. So if you think that this is a man-made thing, I challenge and encourage you, read it first. Listen, I've been a pastor for X amount of years. There's stuff in the Bible I still read. I go, what? what? I, I, I can't. I can't with you today. No, I can't. I can't. God, what? You say, there's still, sometimes it takes two, three years for me to wrestle, 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 wrestle before I finally go, okay. The profoundest need of your heart is a God who is not a product of your heart. A God who says, don't fashion me into your image. Don't make me into something you wanted me to be. See, here's what I've realized, church. Unless you have a God who could tell you things that you don't want to be true, you'll never be changed when he tells you things that are too good to be true. Like he comes along and goes, I love you, Evan. He comes along and goes, Brian Jenkins, my love for you is unconditional. Abraham, you're going to be resurrected someday. Unless you have a God who could tell you things that you don't want to be true, you'll never be transformed. When he comes along, and goes, the gospel. Jesus loves you. Wow. So can I just ask you some tough questions? How many of you say, you know, I just can't believe in a God who allows people to go to hell. I just can't. Are you letting truth shape reality? Or are you letting your imagination shape truth? 
Wrestle with it. How about this? How many of you are saying, I just can't believe in a God who says he dislikes suffering and evil, and yet he seems to allow a lot of suffering and evil. I'm not saying you and I don't struggle with that. I struggle with that. I struggle with that. But be careful fashioning God and going, I just can't believe it, so I'm just not going <clears> to. <throat> I can't believe in a God who says you can't have sex outside of marriage, no matter how good it feels. I just can't be- Before you go, God's kind of old-fashioned, the Bible, you know, I just, da-da-da-da. Sit on it and ask yourselves, am I making God into somebody I want him to, instead of him telling me who he is? How about this one? I can't believe in a God who says everything that I have is a gift from him. I don't own anything. I'm just a manager, and I'm going to be radically generous. Well, I just can't, what, what? I just can't believe in a God who says that I'm morally bankrupt and spiritually dead and that I can be saved apart from Christ and Christ alone. I mean, I could go on and on. Is this God somebody who offends your sensibilities, who says, oh, if this is not a God who's challenging you and saying, is this this who you really are? Do you know him? Do you know him? Sure, there are things that God says through the Bible about himself that grate against your spirituality. But what do you say in relationships, church? Don't you go, I'm a person. I'm a person. I'm not a blank canvas. You can't just draw on me. I'm not a book you can edit. I'm a person for kind of Treat me as I am. Well, here's the question. You want to be treated that way, don't you? Well, then why would you want to treat God any different from the way you want to be treated? I don't know, somebody coming to me, I don't like this, I don't like that. I like, why would you want God? God comes along, second commandment, he says, don't put me in a box. I'm God. C.S. Lewis, I'm an untamed lion for crying out loud. Don't put me in your back pocket, carry me around, take me out whenever you need me. I'm creator God. I deserve to be glorified and to be given thanks, as we talked about, in all circumstances. God comes along and says, I am not on a leash. Don't imagine me to be God other than the one that I really am, because otherwise you're on a collision course with reality. Can I just give one other example and we'll move on? This is how, this is how much our imagination, by the imagination imagine, our same words, has been distorted by sin, okay? You're right, so our appetites, are corrupted by sin. You realize that, right? Physical appetites? Yes? I would eat Popeye's chicken three times a day for the rest of my life if I could, because that's what my appetite says. But if I, if I do that, I'll die. <laughs> How many of you would agree that our sexual appetites are distorted? Everything about us has been distorted, including our imagination. Let me just give you one silly example, okay? My wife and I, when we're driving, my wife, she'll go, do you hear that? Do you hear that? And I'm like, hear what? You hear that? You hear that noise? You hear that noise? I'm like, what noise? The brakes, the brakes. You hear that noise, Peter? <laughs> and I'm one of those people, I just make stuff up and I sound very convincing. You know, I go, oh, all cars with 50,000 miles sound like that. <laughs> and Jenny's like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, she doesn't. She's like, don't be a fool. You can't do that with me. You can fool your church, but you can't do that with me. She's like, pull over. She's like, pull over. Do you know why I do that? Because if I want to be convenient, if I don't want to be convenient, if I want reality to be what I think it to be, my life is so much easier. I hate going to the mechanic. I hate it. I don't trust mechanics. Sorry. (laughs) I don't trust mechanics. 
I don't trust mechanics. I hate the expense. I hate the inconvenience. I might not have my car. So here's the thing. I imagine reality to be what I want it to be so I could be perfectly content. Anybody? You know what we do that with? We do that with our kids. I imagine, to, I imagine them to be what I want them to be because if I do, guess who's in control? Oh, in our marriage, I imagine my spouse to be who I want them to be. Why? Because and it's not until you're sitting in a counselor's office and the wife is going, he doesn't understand who I am. He keeps treating me. And the husband's going, what? And the counselor's going, um, you know what else we do that with? Don't we do that with our addictions? I don't have an addiction. Why? Because if I'm reality, reality is what I want it to be, I could live in denial and not face consequences. Do you understand how much your imagination and what you think has been affected and corrupted by sin? If that's true with our children, our marriages, how much more true is that with God? Don't imagine me. Don't fashion me. Don't make me into something that you want me to be. I've heard some Christians say, you know, it can't be so wrong if it feels so right. Which is another way of saying, I know that the Bible says it's wrong, but I'm sure God will understand Bible says, God says, obey me as I reveal myself to be, not as you imagine me to be. I like to think of God this way, Peter. I believe that I'm doing what I'm doing will glorify God. God will have you, God will come to you and go, I'll tell you how you serve me and how I can be glorified. And then verse 5, and then I got to get to Jesus, of course. <laughs> For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I'm going to say it once because I talked about it earlier. I don't know about multi-generational punishment, but I know about multi-generational consequences. Some of us, from our parents, grandparents, just talked to another guy this week, addicted to pornography. Why? His dad, magazines laying around. His dad, magazines laying around. And on and on it goes. Talked to two Asians two weeks ago whose parents made money and career and making it their idol and their God. And they sat in front of me and said, I vowed I would never do that, Pastor Peter, and yet here I am, making my career my God. So you know the problem. What's the answer? What do you think? Yeah, Christy, it's Jesus. Don't you love him? I didn't say that like corny, like, don't you love him? No, really. Do you love him? Always. Do you know why God says? It's amazing. Anybody familiar with this verse? First, uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. God says, the son, say it, what? Is it what? The image of the invisible. CC. <laughs> Do you know how incredible that is? God comes along and goes, listen, listen, listen to this. It was up to you. If it was up to you to make your own image, you're going to control it. But if you don't have an image of me, then God just, I don't know what it looks like, I don't know what it talks like, I don't. it's an abstraction, and you can't know him personally. 
So God comes along and says, I will show you how you could know me personally and not control me. I will give you an image so you don't have to make it. His name? Say it like you want it. His name? <laughs> Jesus. Is that all? Oh! Do you realize how incredible that is? God comes along and goes, listen, you and I, if, we, if it's up to us, we fashion God. We're going to control and manipulate. I like to think of God. But if we don't have anything, God says, you're not going to be able to have a personal relationship. So God says, I have given you, Greek word is akon, a representative, a representation, a literal, exact image of me. And his name is Jesus. Why? So that you could know me personally and not control. God is so amazing. He is just practical, Peter, practical. How does this apply to us? Okay, fine. See, I could just stop right there and go, Jesus, and be told. But some of us are like, practical, practical. Let's do a little exercise, and then we're going to do communion. This week, when you're frustrated, angry, anxious about something, there's havoc being wreaked in your life. Watch this. Underneath that, underneath that is a distortion of God. Underneath that is a distorted image of God. And you're going to need to put Jesus there. Okay, I'll give you an example. This week, if you're worried, you're worried and anxious and have it. Like there's like two of us in this room that are actually worried. <laughs> worried. Do you know why you're worried? It's because you're assuming that you're smarter than God. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I'm just a worrying type. Please, 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 go deeper. Go deeper. Why are we worried? Why are we worried? Why are we worried? Why are we anxious? Because deep down inside, here's what we're saying. God, I know how my week ought to go. I know how my month ought to go. I know how my next year ought to go. And I don't think you care. I don't think you know. I don't think. That's why I'm worried. Underneath the worry anxiety is an image of God that you have. And it's a distortion. What is it? You're saying God's not wise. God's not loving. God's not good. God doesn't know what's best for me. That's why you're worried. Put Jesus in there. What do I mean? Go to the cross and go see him in the garden. You talk about worry. You talk about anxious. He is overwhelmed with anxiety and worry. What does he do? Father, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass. Isn't there some other way? And yet he says, but what? Not my will. That's it. Your will be done. What's Jesus doing? He's trusting in the goodness of the Father. For who? For who? <laughs> for me. For you and for me. How could we possibly go, I'm worried, you don't know what's best for me, you don't care about me, when you see Jesus pouring sweat of blood and submitting himself to the will of the Father. How can you go to that Jesus and actually say to God, here's a distortion of you. You don't know, you don't care. Look at the anxiety. Go underneath it. Let Jesus, God's image, show you who he is. One more, temptation. How many of us struggle with temptation? <laughs> okay. I'll trust that those of you that didn't raise your hands, that you actually struggle with temptation. 
Every day it seems like we struggle and are tempted to do things that we know are wrong. Again, I heard this illustration from another pastor. There was a man who whenever his wife was away at her mother's on weekends, he brought his mistress home. Every weekend, wife would go away, he would bring his mistress home. Problem was that in this home, there were pictures of his wife (laughs) beaming in love towards her husband. And the mistress would go, take those pictures now. Take those pictures now. Take those pictures now. Why? The only way that he could do what he did, he had to imagine his wife being a mean, cruel, unfeeling, cold person. And he needed to take the pictures down because they were reminders of her love towards him, unconditional love towards him. This is an exercise that I've tried to implement in my life. Next time you're tempted, I just try and imagine Jesus on the cross, not anger, not guilty. I imagine him on the cross beaming in love towards me and saying, I died so that you wouldn't do this. Nails were driven so that you wouldn't do this. I gave my all so that you wouldn't. Again, beaming in love, not judgment, love. Are you going to pierce my side too? Are you going to stick the nail? Beaming in love towards you and me. And whatever that mistress is in your life that you're tempted to sleep with, Jesus says, I've done this for you. The next thing I'm tempted to log on to the computer, I'm being really specific. Take a moment to pause and back and go. I'm not saying this is the answer, solution. There's tons, it's complex addictions, things like pornography and alcohol. But take a moment to spiritually discipline yourself to go, I know I'm doing this. There's a distortion going on in my life. What would you, Jesus saying, I died so that you would. I set you free so that you would. I appreciated Josh Labs came to me this morning, came up real close. He goes, I really appreciated you from last Sunday. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. It was hard, but it was good. Okay. And I said to him, I said, well, get ready for today. Because today, here's how I want to end. How many of you have an image of God as your assistant? Your counselor? Here's my five-year plan. What do you think, career counselor? Hmm. Hold on a minute. Jesus, what do you think about his plan? Holy Spirit, what do you think? How many of you go, God, I'm going to edit you. You don't edit me. God, I'm going to shape you. You don't shape me. How many of you? How many of us? Have God in our pockets and he's who we imagine to be. How many of us have submitted our will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and said, my will be done. Your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. My career, my job, my relationships. God, you're not my counselor. You're not some advisor. You're not some buddy friend I go to to help. God, my life is totally and completely yielded to you. (laughs) I just thought about this. If everything that God to me made sense, then wouldn't make any sense. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Those of you that are going, I can't trust you until I understand it all. Would it make any sense if you understood everything that God did 
Can you still submit without understanding it all? This isn't cop out. That's what Christian. No, this is acknowledging that he is king. Second commandment. Are you worrying? Are you worshiping a graven image? Are you bitter? Are you worshiping a graven image? Do you lack self-control? Are you worshiping a graven image? Will you come to God today and say, I submit to you. There are areas in my life right now I haven't been submitting to you, but I submit to you as God. You're God. I'm not. I'm going to let you, God, be God. I'm going to submit to you even if I don't understand because it's the only way that I'll find new depths of grace and understanding that I never would have found if I hadn't done the submitting and trusting. Maybe God today says to you and me, if you stop trying to make me into your likeness, maybe I can start making you into my likeness. Maybe God says, if you will let me stretch your imagination instead of you confining me to your imagination, I can make you into something beyond your wildest imagination. So, Father, we come to you today. We come to you today sitting on, reflecting on the second commandment. You shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth below. You and I come to our God today a God who says, I am jealous for you. I am jealous for your love. Yes, I am holy. Yes, I am righteous. Yes, I am just. But I am also loving with a jealous love for you. A God who can't stand the sight of you in the arms of some dead, lifeless idol, that career, that woman, that man, that, those grades, the, the, the accomplishment that is enslaving you. God says, I want to set you free. But it begins here, church family. It begins here, my friend. It begins at the point of seeing and worshiping God as he is. As he reveals himself to be not 